Welcome back to the Pro Bono Happy Hour. I'm Elise Dorita. Today's guest is Joe Sullivan from Pepper Hamilton. Joe spoke to us from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where he is based. It's such a deep and wide-ranging conversation, we have broken it up into two episodes. In part two, we discuss the Framinutes Pro Bono program, have a pro bono story time, and more. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Could you tell us a little about Pepper Hamilton? Glad to. It's a, a law firm of about 450 to 475 lawyers. We um, are practice only in the United States, but we have 13 offices. Our biggest office is in Philadelphia, where I work. Um, but we also have offices in New York, Princeton, New Jersey, Berwyn, Delaware County, Wilmington, Delaware, Washington, D.C., Harrisburg and Pittsburgh, Detroit, Michigan, and three offices in California, in Los Angeles, Orange County, and Silicon Valley. And we are a full-service civil law firm. We do almost every area of civil legal work, and we have a wide range of clients from large corporations to wealthy individuals on one end and um, smaller but also uh, very successful entities and individuals on the other. We have a significant commitment to pro bono work, which is my area of focus at Pepper. Um, We uh, do pro bono work in all 13 offices. Um, I have organized the work into uh, um, what I call pro bono practice groups so that we can gain a greater level of knowledge and experience in specific areas of poverty law. And um, it's a very collegial firm. Everybody here works well, in my opinion, with everybody else. We put a high priority on collegiality, a low priority on status in the sense that we are all on a first-name basis and we don't have staff who have to call the partners Mr. Ms. or whatever. Almost everybody is on a first-name basis. And we, that's because that is what we feel is natural. We're all working together and we're all working collaboratively. Right. So you mentioned that your role is pro bono. So as special counsel and the firm's director of pro bono programs, how do you spend your time? I know we touched on this a little earlier. Well, I do a lot of different things. It would be very hard to cover them all. But um, I would say, if, if, if for simplicity, that I would put my work into three buckets. The first bucket is recruiting and training lawyers. To, on how to do pro bono and recruiting the pro bono work from our many public interest law center partners. That would be one third. The second third would be supervising younger lawyers on their specific cases, although we also have partners assigned to each, separately to each case, uh, and ensuring that our relationships with our public interest partners are going well and that we're getting you know, interesting and challenging pro bono work over a broad range of topics. So the second bucket, if you will, would be manage, supervising and managing the program. And then the third bucket is practicing law myself, where I work on various pro bono matters. I do not work on fee matters because um, we have such a great need in the area of pro bono that, and because that's where I focused my career in, over the last 20-something years. So I do a lot of practicing law and, and pro bono matters. That's the third bucket. But there's a lot of different things there. So, for example, um, although every associate who's on a pro bono matter or groups of associates on a pro bono matter has a partner supervisor or enough counsel supervisor, sometimes those 
supervisors are not available, so I am usually available to take calls from associates with questions, and uh, I give answers where I can and, and or I find other senior lawyers who can answer those questions. So I'm sort of like a connecting, um, a connector, if you will, between the practicing lawyer, lawyers practicing pro bono matters and ensuring that they get the proper supervision that they get. So that's part of my job. You know, so I want, I want to recruit them. I want to match the lawyers with areas that they're interested in. I want to connect their interests and skills with the corresponding public interest law centers who are sending us the cases. That's part one. Part two is keeping that system going. Uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, on any given day, I get several calls from partners and associates with questions about different matters. And because I do this full-time, I'm usually able to come up with a good answer or refer them to somebody else that I have identified who can give them a good answer. And then the third part is, as I say, practicing law directly. So is there anything you wish you could be doing more of or less of or what your greatest challenge is? <laughs> I have those thoughts frequently, uh, <laughs> to be honest, because I'd like to do more. And and so, and I'm learning all the, every day, too, because sometimes we'll take on a matter that seems fairly straightforward. And, of course, then it turns into being a more complicated matter for any number of reasons, including the client didn't really understand the complexity of the matter when they came to us or when after we've met with the client and interviewed them, we realized it's going to be more work than we thought it would be. So those are the kinds of more and less than, more than and less than issues that we come up with all the time. Um, but I also enjoy that because it, it, it's mentally and intellectually challenging to figure out how can we make any, do an even better job for a client or fill in a hole that we hadn't been able to address before because we didn't even know it was there until it sort of, developed as we're working on the case. There's a lot of ongoing uh, supervision and a need to be nimble and creative in finding the resources to fill any gaps that arise unexpectedly. So that's a big part of what I do. I spend a lot of my day on the phone uh, talking with lawyers in several different offices of the firm about pro bono matters, trying to get, uh, listen to what issues they have they would like to discuss and come up, coming up with creative solutions. And sometimes the solution is just to get another lawyer on the case in addition to the lawyer who called me because more legal firepower is needed, put it that way. So sometimes the net result of one of those calls would be that I'll get another lawyer to work with the lawyer who called me. Sometimes uh, it's to relieve the concerns of the lawyer that he or she is doing the right thing and no, they didn't need to do X, Y, and Z that they were wondering about because it's not necessary, or helping them find additional resources when they hit a, a speed bump, finding additional resources, some of which are outside the legal community, to help them get to the next level. So sometimes uh, we will need to get a financial analysis done for a client, not often, but it happens. And we don't do that kind of thing as a law firm, although we obviously are very, we have sophisticated uh, lawyers who have backgrounds in accounting and all that, but we don't take on matters exclusively as, um, you know, for purposes of striking um, deals um, uh, from an arithmetical perspective or an algorithmic perspective. We, we do deals. But the number crunches are often 
in the in the uh, client uh, in, a, in a, the clients offices or in our opposing counsel's clients offices. So we're not really experts in all different areas of accounting and financial matters. But if if a client needs something done that we can't do, I will try to find an agency that will do it for us pro bono. So we have tapped into all of the major uh, accounting firms over the years to help us with special projects where we need financial expertise that we don't have in-house. So that's another thing that I do. And um, that's why I I keep um, focusing on the fact that there's a need for flexibility and a need to be nimble. Because very often, in most cases, we can solve the problem by consulting other lawyers within the firm. There are other issues that we are beyond our expertise. And then my job, in part, is to go out and find the experts and try to convince them to help us and to do so on a pro bono basis if possible or on a reduced fee basis. So we might have a client who can pay something for a financial analysis but not the standard fees of one of these accounting firms. So I may call up one of them, tell them what the case is about, and ask them if they have the expertise. And if they say yes, I said, well, if you can't do it pro bono, could you do it at a significant discount? And sometimes they'll do that, depending on the case and the facts and the cause and all those other factors. So that's another thing that I do. And um, that can't be sort of listed in the category of skills. It's it's the things you do in, in between the the levels of work that you're already familiar with that you also have to be able to handle in order to be successful in representing a client who really can't go out and hire other people to do what needs to be done. So we just touched on this briefly. What have you found works best to incentivize lawyers at the firm to do pro bono? What are your most successful tricks and tips? Um, That is also um, a layered answer, but I think the most successful tip is to try to Find out in conversation with each lawyer or as many lawyers as you can what they're interested in, what they care about. Um, And because it's human nature to do the best job you can in areas where you have your own personal deep um, interest and concern. So what I do periodically at Pepper Hamilton, other firms do this, is I hold what I call a pro bono orientation for categories of of lawyers, one, for example, for our summer associates each year, another for the fall associates who come to the firm in a large group every fall uh, to begin working in a number of different fee um, practice groups. And we do them for laterals over the course of the year. And in those presentations, I give them the broad view of pro bono, what it is, why we do it, the nuts and bolts of how we make it happen at Pepper, the facts like that we give billable hour credit to associates for approved pro bono work, those kinds of details. Then I have associates who have been here a few years and are doing pro bono regularly. We have, I have a few of them speak in usually three different offices and three different areas of practice about what high pro bono they've done and why they did it and why they felt good about it. And then I have a few partners talk about some bigger themes in the uh, why pro bono is a good idea for different perspectives. And then um, basically, that's an hour and a half. It's a lot of time. But we only ask lawyers, new lawyers who come here to do it once. And the goal there is to give them the biggest possible view of what pro bono is all about and why the firm supports it. So that's my biggest tip or technique. Um, the other techniques involve being willing to talk 
to lawyers one-on-one. If, if we have an area where we're not getting enough volunteers because for any number of reasons, I try to identify lawyers who I think might be interested. And I go visit them and I chat with them and I either you know, hit the gold mine. They say, yeah, I'd love to do that. Or they say, I really am not into that area, but you know what I would like to do? And they tell me something else. And then I try to help them explore options in that area. So um, personal contact, being encouraging, um, being respectful of people's time, and being willing to help when needed are, there are things that people do all, all the time in life, but they're really important techniques or tricks that I use to get lawyers to do pro bono and to keep them doing it. So great techniques. So what role does the firm leadership play in supporting a successful law firm pro bono program? Um, the short answer is that the firms have to signal from the top that they believe in pro bono and that it's important. Um, so, um, for example, what if a firm has a managing partner or an executive partner, um, it's good for that lawyer, he, she, to... Um, speak out about pro bono periodically in firm-wide messaging, whether it's to congratulate a, a team of lawyers who won a spectacular victory that will help a whole category of people in need, or whether somebody is being honored by an outside agency like the ACLU or, uh, you know, the uh, uh, an environmental protection agency, nonprofit, whoever it is. If awards are given to lawyers for their legal work on behalf of those nonprofits, and that happens at many firms, certainly happens at my firm, I sometimes try to get our managing partner to send out an email to all lawyers congratulating the folks on that team for what they've done as a way of reminding everybody at Pepper Hamilton that this is a firm that supports pro bono, that this is a firm that believes in pro bono, and that we believe it's part of our duty as a corporate citizen as well as a bunch of lawyers to support the larger community in one way or another and to support the rule of law because that's really what all advocacy is about. You're helping individuals, including individual persons and individual corporations, but we're supporting that. But we're also, in doing that, supporting the overall belief that this is a country of laws and and, and, and we live by the rule of law. And we don't violate those laws. And, and when they're violated, there are ways to address the violations and try to fix uh, things that have gone wrong or compensate people for wrong that's already occurred. So um, I think messaging from the top of the law firm is number one. Number two is to have um, an array, uh, to have a, an established policy statement such as my firm has that says we support pro bono work by all of our lawyers and paralegals. We believe they should be doing this. We believe it's part of our role as a public citizen, and we believe it's great a training uh, and skills development opportunity for the lawyers and paralegals as well, and to do things like give billable hour credit as we do here at Pepper Hamilton and as other firms do, so that lawyers don't feel that they are sacrificing fee work for pro bono work. And otherwise, have the work, excuse me, have the work evaluated by uh, senior lawyers uh, who can do that alongside the fee work that the, the lawyers do. So, you know, for associates, they're doing most of their work as fee work, but they often do significant pro bono work. 
and that's time and that's an effort on their part and we believe that all of that work should be evaluated fee work and pro bono work and the firm makes that clear to um, everybody who comes to the firm and that's another way to support a successful pro bono program so I want to talk about a benefit that you just mentioned about pro bono, which is skills development. In a recent ABA article titled Learning Business on the Street, you said pro bono cases can accelerate the skills development and experience of lawyers, sometimes by a matter of years. Could you talk more about pro bono as a training and professional development tool? Yes, um, I will certainly try. Um, <clears throat> In every area of fee work, as a lawyer, you, ha you are developing skills, necessarily. That's why a lawyer with five years of experience gets paid more than a lawyer with two years of experience, and why a lawyer with eight years of experience gets paid more than a lawyer with five years of experience, because you're learning on the job, you're getting better and better as you go, and you're developing more perspectives and the ability to weigh a bunch of different conflicting ideas and principles in your head at the same time and then being able to come up with a strategy or uh, you know, a, an action plan. That's a skill that is developed over a number of years. Lawyers don't have those skills when they graduate from law school, whether they went to Harvard or you know, Podunk U, if there is such a place. You know, the point is, you don't learn those skills wherever you go to law school. You have to learn them on the job. And um, so if, it's, if being a, an effective lawyer means knowing how to practice law in the real world, not just being the student who graduated first in your class at a law school, uh, you have to get, in, get your hands and your feet dirty. You have to get into the system, start working the cases, work, working with clients. And uh, very often you can do that in part in your early years through pro bono. And here's an example. If you take a court appointment, most, many of the federal courts and state courts will appoint lawyers to represent clients um, in civil matters, not just uh, criminal matters, such as prison civil rights cases. We do a number of them. Many firms in Philadelphia do, and I'm sure around the country. So very often I will get second and third year associates in a team of two to accept an appointment from the court to represent a prisoner they will still have a very good partner assigned to supervise their work. But in the real world, they are going to be meeting with the client much more frequently than the partner will. They will be reviewing the documents. They will be taking the depositions. They will be evaluating deposition answers. They will be drafting motions to dismiss or responses to motions to dismiss or motions for summary judgment or responses to that. those motions. All of that requires skills and skills that you develop over time. Uh, and if you do a lot of that in pro bono work alongside with your fee work when you're a second, third, and fourth year associate, by the time you re reach your fifth year, you are more likely to have more experience in taking depositions, for example, or an oral argument on a point of law than your co colleague who has only done fee work. Uh, not that there's, th that's, not that that's true in all cases, of course, because you could be in a fee matter that has, that's so intense that you're taking depositions all the time. But as a general matter, you will get more of the skills development that you need if you are doing both fee and pro bono work than if you just do fee work. And in the example that I was just citing, 
for example, after all the evidence is in, and you have to weigh whether or not the evidence really supports the claims that you made on your behalf of your client uh, of, let's say, a violation of um, the Eighth Amendment, a deliberate indifference to medical needs, or excessive force, whatever, you're going to have to figure out if the evidence that you have now gathered, including deposition evidence and documentary evidence, really supports the claim. And maybe it supports a claim, but not that claim. Uh, and then you have to go back and figure out what's the best claim you can assert for your client. And then you have to talk to your client about that and come to agreement on how to proceed going forward. That's a very complex process, but you've got to learn it sometime and why, for all your work. So why not learn some of it in pro bono matters while you're also learning it in fee matters? Um, that makes you a better lawyer earlier in your career, and that's why I say accelerates the learning curve. And by the way, the same thing is true with transactional law. You will be needing to learn how to negotiate, uh, record, and um, uh, conclude deals of all kinds, You know, whether it's real estate, tax issues, trust issues, or just contracts between two large corporations for services or products. You're dealing, you're, you're doing deals all the time, and that involves a lot of negotiating. Well, there are pro bono opportunities to do something, even if it's on a smaller scale like that. So, for example, we have small business clinics where we will have lawyers who are transactional lawyers advise people who want to start a new business on what they need to do with regard to real estate issues or tax issues or some other issue. And we may be asked to draft documents for those clients who can't afford a lawyer on their own. And it might just be a, a lease agreement or revisions to a prior contract so that it works more smoothly with um, in, in sort of the second iteration of the contract than it did in the first iteration. All things, all sorts of transactional work that um, you can be doing on a pro bono basis while you're also doing your fee work so that at year four or five, you're better, you're more adept at doing deals. You're more adept at dealing with a range of clients, some of whom are extremely demanding and others who are very compliant, with most, of course, being somewhere between the two of those things. But you have to learn how to deal with people. You need to know how to create incentives to do A and disincentives to not do B, you know, whatever it is. All of that is something that comes up in transactional pro bono matters. And so you can get some of those skills honed uh, or de further developed through pro bono matters, uh, as well as through your fee work. So that's what I mean by accelerating the learning curve. You're learning earlier, you're learning faster, and in pro bono you tend to be more hands-on at a young, at a very young early stage in your career, I should say, than you might if you are working on big fee matters with two partners, three senior lawyers, and you on the team. In that case, you may not be able to take to, to if it's litigation, take depositions, or you may not be able to talk one-on-one -on -one uh, with the fee client, you know, a general counsel or a senior vice president, you're not going to get to talk to that person if you're the low person on a five-person totem pole. But you have to talk to that client if it's a pro bono matter because you're it. You're helping that client. And you have, you have to deal with them and you have to be able to negotiate with them to get something that's as close to what the client wants that is consonant with what the law requires and what ever pushback they may be getting from the other side. So all that negotiating stuff is complicated, and you can do a lot of that 
in fee work as well as in do, doing it in pro bono work and learn how to be good at that earlier in your career. So firm lawyers engage in substantial community economic development uh, pro bono work, right. yep, which isn't something I know a lot about. And I want to know what does that work entail and how do you find appropriate projects and opportunities? Okay, so first of all, I should say that there is fee work in that area and pro bono work in that area. Many uh, states, municipalities, regional authorities have the funding to hire lawyers to work on community development projects. And in that case, that's handled by our fee lawyers or by our lawyers on a fee basis. Uh, But in smaller matters where, for example, we recently represented a nonprofit entity in West Philadelphia that wanted to acquire conservatorship rights over a piece of property that is between two of the nonprofit's buildings, but is not occupied. It's an open lot, and it was being um, basically trashed. People were throwing trash in there. There were some people allegedly smoking weed in that park, in that, that area. And the agency that owns the, the lots, it's a public service agency, uh, um, it's really a community service agency, wanted to find a way to stop that kind of conduct in between because they were concerned that it would, frankly, frighten away some of the clients that they serve in their buildings. And they otherwise just wanted to make sure that this property was being used correctly or properly. So they came to us through one of our public news law centers, and we agreed to to help them create a conservatorship over this piece of property. And um, they did... obtained that right. They cleaned up the lot at their own expense. They put uh, appropriate fencing around it, and they are considering whether or not they will be able to afford in the near future to purchase the lot from the absentee owners. The owners live in Florida. um, Purchase it from them so that they can basically unite their properties by buying the missing link in the middle uh, and they thought the best way to get that going was to first offer to be service conservators, which I think was a wise strategic move on their part. We helped them do that. That was almost all transactional pro bono work. And they were getting ready to complete that matter. Um, and then it will be up to the nonprofit to decide if it wants to try to bid on this property in whatever way uh is appropriate for purchasing it from the actual owners who are live in Florida and don't have any interest in this property. So, um, you know, they're, they're, they will have to decide if they want to go forward from where they are now to full, fully obtaining ownership rights. We're not representing them on that at the, this point, but should they call us in a year or two and say, we are now in a position to make a bid on the property, and here are the public interest uses we want to put the property to, we might represent them at that point as well. So um, as I say, there's a fair amount of community development work that can be done and is done on a pro bono basis, but uh, there's no one, one way it happens. And as with the other kinds of pro bono, we always partner with qualified public interest law centers uh, in that kind of work. So, for example, in this region, there's an, so, uh, a, a public interest agency called Regional Housing Legal Services, and they do almost all transactional work involving real estate of various kinds, and in protecting the rights of homeowners and landowners, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So we work with them periodically on helping them 
to structure pro, uh, pro, uh, proposed acquisitions uh, and proposed conservatorships and other things for the owners of real estate or the would-be owners of real estate so that we can ensure and this agency can ensure that this property, which is otherwise not being used properly, can be developed into a useful property that advances the public interest, like safety in the neighborhood or jobs for local residents or whatever. Great. Thank you for um, talking more about that because I really didn't know much. Uh, so we recently launched a relatively new segment on the podcast. Tell us about your first time. Could you tell us about uh, your first or one of your early pro bono matters that you handled? Um, yes, actually I can. I had a few few big successes as a young lawyer. Um, in one case, I represented um, a homeless man that I'd met at a clinic uh, who was a veteran. And he was an older man. He was actually a veteran of Vietnam, not Iran, uh, Iraq or Afghanistan. So he was a Vietnam veteran war veteran who had been living in uh, a room in a building that had several single rooms for, um, for, for men who lived alone. The landlord uh, for, of the building at some point was able to take advantage of a tax credit for commercial development, and he evicted all 10 men almost overnight. They didn't have leases. They were just living there month to month. And then this gentleman, because he was impaired, both by uh, a history of alcoholism and medical issues, was living under a bridge uh, by himself. Uh, and somehow he had survived living under a bridge in Philadelphia for nine months before I met him. But he was a mess, obviously. He did have some kind of a card that allowed him to go to, his, to an emergency room once in a while to get some medical help. But otherwise, he was a mess. He was suffering from a couple of illnesses, and he did, had not had been discharged from the military with a less than honorable discharge because of his alcoholism. So he was a mess. He didn't have a lot of resources available to him. Uh, but thankfully, he, even with all those um, disabilities, was a very social person. And he had a lot of homeless friends. And through conversations that they would have on a regular basis, he found out about one of our public interest law centers, went to them, and came to one of our clinics. And that's where I met him. And although I had to come back and meet him several times before he trusted me enough to let me help him, I did that. And ultimately, we were able to get him um, what are called supplemental security income, or SSI benefits based on having two qualifying conditions, one of which was a history of alcoholism and the other of which was that he was a veteran, we were able to get him SSI benefits. And then we were able, and on part two, I had help from other lawyers, we were able to find him an apartment in a building, a very nice building in Philadelphia, in which a certain number of the apartment units were reserved for either retired mail carriers or veterans because the funding for the building itself was provided in part by private sources, but in significant part by the Postal Workers Union and by um, the Department of Health and Human Services. So that in exchange for their financial contributions to building the building, they had the right to, to reserve a certain number of units for people who needed them. So I represented this gentleman over two years 
at least two years because everything moves slowly. But we were first able to get him, after a lot of work and an extended time period, to get him Social Security SSI benefits, which you know took his income from virtually nothing up to many several hundreds of dollars. He certainly didn't become rich, but he had a lot more money and could actually buy meals on a regular basis, buy some clothing, and pay the low rent, relatively low rent, that he was charged for this unit. So we got him off the streets, we got him the medical care he needs, we got him a home, and we got him a source of ongoing revenue that was enough for him to function. And we did all of that, and there was no better feeling than the day that first time when we got him the benefits, uh, which included back benefits for a certain period of time, and then when we got him this unit to live to live in at 8th and Walnut Street in Philadelphia. So that was one of my early cases that I remember fondly, and I'm very proud that we were able to get that done for this gentleman. That's an amazing story. Are there some other examples of pro bono cases that have been particularly meaningful to you? Well, I'll just mention a couple of others. I represented on a number of cases students whose First Amendment rights were being challenged uh, through an agency that uh, uh, something called the Student Press Law Center, which is actually based in Arlington, Virginia. But uh, they had a network of lawyers around the country, and I was on in their list of network lawyers. So I represented um, students who uh, were publishing an independent newspaper. Uh, that they proposed on their own and off-premises, uh, but that they brought into a large suburban school district in Philadelphia and started distributing. They made a, a one mistake, which was to use a four-letter word in one of their music reviews, which caused the uh, school district to be outraged and to advise them that they were not going to be allowed to distribute their paper anywhere at any time, anywhere on the grounds of the schools or its school campus. Um, but under the law at that time, and I think it's still the law, that while high schools can censor student-sponsored newspapers, uh, school-sponsored newspapers that get funding from the school and that have mo- moderators who are faculty members at the school, if the students produce their own independent newspaper, they are not subject to the, that level of control and censorship by by school officials as long as they comply with what are called reasonable time, place, and manner restrictions. So I was able to negotiate uh, with a large affluent suburban school district represented by council, uh, a settlement um, after three and a half hours of discussion in which they essentially agreed that these students were doing this out of the goodness of their hearts, something they believed in. The students accepted responsibility for using that word and said they wouldn't use it again. And they also agreed that they would only distribute the newspaper at certain times of the day and in certain locations so that they didn't disrupt the primary activities at the school as in, as in teaching and you know, using the lunchroom and all that sort of thing. And they were able to go back and distribute their newspaper just with those minimal limitations that I just described. That was a huge victory because they would would never have been able to get those concessions from this school district, which really misunderstood the issues. Uh, They would never have been able to get that level of cooperation if they didn't have a lawyer helping them. And then I represented another group of students who worked hard to get access to school security records Um, We made a lot of headway in that case. At the end, 
the, we, we won rulings in some courts, we lost them in other courts, but ultimately uh, the students were able to get some of what they were looking for and they at least felt vindicated that they had a lawyer standing up for their rights uh, as students enrolled in the school to getting access to those records. So those are a couple of examples in the area of free speech where I've done pro bono work that I feel great about. Those are great. Um, so could you tell us what's on the horizon for the pro bono program and if you have anything new in the works? What's on the horizon is just more hard work to make this keep going and build and grow. Um, uh, you know, I, my motivation in doing this job is to literally to expand access to justice, literally to get legal help to more people who need it, especially in those areas of fundamental legal need that I've already mentioned. Um, I think the more, what I find is when lawyers and private firms start doing pro bono, they almost always are glad they did and they want to do more. So what's on the horizon for me is creating more pro bono practice groups in a broader group of areas, getting more lawyers at this firm and in other firms to take the plunge, do pro bono, uh, and have the successes that almost everybody has when they get engaged. And, um, you know, ultimately having a, a system where there's much more access to lawyers and the legal system than there is at present. So it's an ongoing process. That's what I want to accomplish. I want more pro bono at Pepper Hamilton. I want more options for our lawyers so that we can get them pro bono that interests them and, and, and about things they care about. And um, I want more lawyers doing pro bono generally so that we can help more people. That's great. So who is your pro bono role model slash access to justice role model and why? You can pick more than one because I know it's hard. Pro bono role models? Um well, my role models are the people who do what I do in all the firms around uh, Philadelphia and also around the country. I belong to a, an entity called the Association of Pro Bono Counsel, or ABCO, uh, which is a national and now international group of lawyers who do what I do at big firms and medium-sized firms around the country and now around the world in several countries, including England and Scotland and Australia and New Zealand and certain other countries. Um, and so most, many of them are my role models because they're just doing amazing work, and they do it day in and day out. My other role models are the, the lawyers who work full-time in public interest law centers who uh, achieve credible victories, credible make credible difference, and they do it first and foremost out of a desire to achieve higher just, levels of justice. Within Pepper Hamilton, I have several role models, which are mostly partners, but sometimes associates, who have not only taken a case or two from me, but they did far better at the case than I ever imagined myself that I might be able to do. So I got a bunch of different role models. I think life is good when you have role models because it gives you the idea that you can always get better. That's a great sentiment. So I want to end on that uh, great thought. And thank you for joining me today, Joe. It's been a great conversation. Thank you for inviting me to, to participate. I really love this area, and it's great to be able to have a conversation with you about it. Thank you. New and archive episodes of the podcast can be found on Apple Podcasts and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. Please take a moment to leave an Apple Podcast review. It's quick and easy to do. We'd appreciate the feedback and would help make it easier for other listeners to find the show and expand the conversation about pro bono and access to justice. 
We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, feedback, and questions to probono at probonoinst.org.